chapter 10, Dr. Faust from Antioch to Seville, part 1, the permissiveness of the Renaissance. The identification of woman with nature and man with cultural values was very common in a number of ancient societies. It was accepted in the ideology of the Christian Middle Ages and the Malleus Maleficarum in stating that woman is an evil of nature only reiterates a rather traditional thought. The climate of opinion from which Christianity arose is characterised by a dualistic tension between the divinity, which is transcendent, and existence of the natural world. Now, since man's true homeland, the haven of salvation, is heaven, nature is envisaged as a place of exile, and the body, according to the Platonic postulate, as a tomb. This situation implies, on the one hand, the constant seduction of man by nature, a seduction resulting in an increasingly pronounced effort, whose main instruments are religion and religious morality, to escape from the traps set by nature. Nature is a mindless organism endowed with beauty and a great capacity to fascinate, which engenders beings, nourishes and destroys them. On the other hand, religion represents an ensemble of laws with the purpose of saving man from natural destruction, ensuring him indestructibility on the spiritual plane. On the level of sexual differentiation, it is woman who assumes the role of nature and man the role of religion and its laws. It follows that the more beautiful a woman is, the more she evidences her natural functions, breeding, fertility, nutrition, and the more suspect she is from the religious point of view. Indeed, beauty means an increased capacity for seduction in view of the act of insemination, and therefore a powerful danger to man who must save himself from the defilement of sexual desire. The somatic signs of fertility and the nutritive function, the hips, the breasts, are what engender cupidity and sin. This is why the culture of the Middle Ages propounds its own ideal of beauty, which is contrary to natural beauty, the beauty of virtue acquired through contempt for and mortification of the body. The history of woman's fashion furnishes us with valuable information on this subject. Beyond its variations, dress has the primary function of concealing the female body entirely, including the hair of a married woman. The bust must be levelled and flat, since the ideal of virtuous beauty demands almost non-existent breasts. The object of admiration until the end of the Middle Ages is woman's delicate figure, her fragile and virginal appearance. You know how delicate is the waist of an ant, says Wolfram of Eschenbach, but that of a young girl is even more so. The custom of husband and wife sleeping together naked in the conjugal bed does not appear until the 14th century. Before that, there is explicit evidence that forces us to believe it was not unusual for a man never to see his wife entirely nude. The Umbrian mystic poet, Jacopone de Todi, only found out upon the death of his wife that she used to wear a rough hair shirt under her clothes, which had badly wounded her body.
In the 14th century, a marked change in custom occurred, evidenced by just as revolutionary a change in fashion. The Chronique du Limbourg informs us that the neckline was cut so low that it was possible to see half of the breasts. Isabel of Bavaria introduced deep-necked dresses cut down to the navel. Sometimes the breasts are completely bare, the nipple the nipples decorated with rouge or rings of precious stones and even pierced to permit insertion of little gold chains. This fashion reached the villages, of course, in a modified form. Peasants too chose low-necked dresses in bright colours. Geiler of Kaiserberg Geiler of Kaisersburg, an early 16th century moralist, is shocked by once having thus glimpsed the breasts of a young woman but he is particularly overwhelmed by the village dances in which the young girl, having been tossed up in the air, showed everything behind and in front as far up as the pubic bone, since those social circles at that period lacked underwear. In the 15th century, though, the topless style is rarely worn. A new standard of beauty arises which accentuates nature's charms to the detriment of the charms of virtue. Jan Hus, a bohemian reformer burned alive in Constance in 1415, denounces these women who wore dresses with necklines cut so deep and wide that almost half their bosom was visible and everyone could see their dazzling skin everywhere in the temples of God, in front of priests and clergy as well as in the marketplace, but still more at home. The part of the breasts which is covered is made so prominent that it looks like two horns. And elsewhere, then they make two horns on their bosom very high up and artificially projected toward the front, even when nature has not endowed them with such important advantages. Finally, thanks to the shape of their bodice and an excess of clothing, the horns of their bosom rise up. The preference for round and matronly shapes is accentuated in the course of the Renaissance. Quote, the slender young men and the fragile young girls of the 14th and 15th centuries have become strong and determined men with broad shoulders and mature, vigorous women with the ample dimensions of the 16th century that are familiar to us through the masterpieces of Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael, Michelangelo, Sansovino, Giorgione, Titian, Correggio, and others. The figure was sometimes revealed, sometimes accentuated by the costume. Catherine de' Medici introduced to the French court a fashion reminiscent of the Cretan. The low-cut neckline emphasised the bosom which was hidden by a light and transparent material or else left completely bare. End quote. Italian fashion in the 15th century was high-waisted, which enabled the breasts to be exposed. This is even evident on the tombstone of a matron of Lucca, designed by Jacopo della Quercia, 1438, who sculpted the ample shapes of motherhood. 16th century Italian fashion presages the low waist, the bosom covered by a short bodice with a square neckline. A fresco by Francesco del Cossa, The Weavers, 
1468 to 69, in the Chiffonoia Palace at Ferrara, is a real fashion show of the high waist. On the other hand, Raphael's portraits of women reveal the dropped waist and the evolution of the neckline. His Madonnas and his angels sometimes wear low-waisted dresses. A certain balance is apparent in these variations in women's costumes. The high waist reveals the bosom, which is, however, covered. The low waist flattens it, but the neckline is sometimes so wide as to extend over the shoulder, exposing the dazzling sin that had so scandalised the reformer Jan Hus. In conclusion, the fashion and costumes at the end of the Middle Ages and during the Renaissance show all the indications of permissiveness and even, in some cases, if we think of the mixed public baths or village dances, of a promiscuity hitherto unknown. Literature does not contradict this general impression because, with the exception of fables, erotic subjects have never been treated with the frankness of a Boccaccio, a Chaucer, a Machiavelli, a Rabelais, or a Bruno. Art also gives evidence of this change in customs. Not to delve into broad generalities, we have only to recall the great difference in portrayal of the human body between late Gothic art and 15th century Renaissance art, the painting of Masaccio, for instance. Subjects inspired by ancient mythology become, in the works of Poleuolo, Piero di Cosimo, Lorenzo de Credi, Luca Signorelli, Botticelli, Leonardo, Michelangelo, etc., a pretext for incredibly bold studies of female nudes. A wind of independence was blowing everywhere, disquieting the religious authority. Luigi Cortuzio, a jurist of Pavia who died July 17th, 1418, left a rather strange will which shows us how private mentality had been liberated from medieval tradition. Cortuzio's main beneficiary was to be a member of his family who, in the funeral procession, wore the most naturally cheerful expression. On the other hand, those who wept were to be disinherited. Cortuzio repudiated mourning and the tolling of bells. The house and the church where his body lay were to be decorated with garlands of flowers and green leaves. Fifty musicians playing hallelujah were to accompany the procession to the cemetery. No monk dressed in black was to be allowed in the procession. By contrast, the catafalque was to be carried by twelve young girls dressed in green singing merry refrains. We cannot say whether or not the permissiveness of the authorities went so far as to allow the provisions of Cortuzio's will to be carried out, but the reaction to sexual emancipation exhibitionist dress and non-conformism was not late in coming. The moralistic sermons of a Jan Hus in Bohemia and of a Savranola in Florence, whose effectiveness and power of persuasion were tremendous, enable us to glimpse what was to become, in the 16th century, the mentality of Reformation. Part 2 it will be hotter in hell. Wherever the Reformation became established, customs changed. 
In women's fashion, this change was marked by the complete disappearance of low-cut dresses. Instead, women wore dresses with a high collar and a double skirt, the purpose of which seems to have been avoiding attracting attention when dancing. Mixed public baths, which had proliferated in the 14th century, hardly exist in the 16th. The German Reformation produced no unitary fashion. After 1540, the dominant influence came from Spain and quickly spread throughout Europe, including the Protestant countries. The ideology responsible for Spanish fashion is clear and simple. Woman is the blind instrument for seduction of nature, the symbol of temptation, sin and evil. Beside her face, the principal baits of her allure are the signs of her fertility, hips and breasts, but also each millimetre of skin exhibited. The face, alas, must stay exposed, but it is possible for it to wear a rigid and manly expression. The neck can be enveloped in a high lace collar, as to the bosom, the treatment dealt it closely resembles the traditional deformation of the feet of Japanese women, being no less painful and unhealthy. The custom, which lasts unchanged until the beginning of the 18th century, is described thus by the Countess of Olnoy. Among Spanish women, it is a sign of beauty to have no bosom, and they take early precautions to prevent it from appearing. When the breasts begin to appear, they place little plates of lead on it and bind themselves up like the children we swaddle. They have no bosom in one piece, almost like a piece of paper. Since the lower parts of the body were taboo, a system was developed for making the skirt longer than the legs, especially by means of shoes with high soles of wood or cork. This kind of footwear found unexpected allies in church circles in Italy who considered these uncomfortable shoes to be an effective weapon against the pleasures of this world and particularly against dancing. Women who wore them had a right to indulgences. The colour of the clothes was, of course, black. Fashion certainly determines the threshold of sexual excitement. A permissive style which gives a woman an opportunity to exhibit all her natural charms results in a certain indifference between the sexes. On the other hand, a repressive style induces a proportionate lowering of the threshold of excitement. An example of this is that when Spanish fashion prevailed, the supreme favour a woman granted her suitor, the acme of happiness was to show him her foot. In the 19th century, the situation had not entirely changed, for Victor Hugo tells us in Les Miserables that Marius fell into a long erotic reverie, having glimpsed, by chance, Cosette's ankle. The only country where Spanish fashion gained no foothold was Italy. The fact that Rome has always been the site of the Vatican and that among the Roman Curia there have always been men endowed with remarkable intelligence and scepticism saved Italy from the excesses of intolerance. It was, moreover, the only province of the church that hardly experienced the mad fury of the persecution of witches. Baroque art is impregnated with sensuality, and the female costume of the 17th century is far from evincing the same rigid uniformity as in the rest of Europe. 
the ideal of femininity propounded by the Reformation finds its most perfect expression in Spanish fashion. A woman defeminized, masculinized, whose role is no longer the nefarious seduction of man, but to assist him on the difficult paths of moral perfection. The culture tends to destroy natural attractions by means of cruel or unhealthy practices. The bosom is flattered with lead plaques. The expressivity of the face is eliminated. The waistline is raised, and the woman is covered from neck to toes. In short, an attempt is made to give her an appearance as masculine as possible. Natural femininity, overflowing, voluptuous and sinful, is categorised as awful. Henceforth only witches will dare to have wide hips, prominent breasts, conspicuous buttocks, long hair. We have only to look at Hans Baldongrian's engravings or the illustrations for De Emmaus. Strasbourg, 1517, by Johannes Geiler of Kaisersburg, to realise the extraordinary vitality of the Malefice. In contrast to this picture of the natural, anti-conformist and destructive temptress is the rigid, uniform figure and emaciated face of the virtuous Spanish woman. The literature and imagery relating to witchcraft border on the pornographic, the inhibitions of an entire era of repression are poured into it. All possible and impossible perversions are ascribed to witches and their fiendish partners. Hans Baldung Grien does not hesitate to represent naturalistically cunnilingus between a very voluptuous young heretic, long hair floating in the wind, and the dragon Leviathan, from whose mouth emerges a sort of penis in the form of a tendril, 1515. The pictures of the witch's sabbat include scenes every bit as indelicate whose manifest intent is to edify the reader concerning the antisocial practices of witches. But the latent content of all this iconography is easy to grasp taking as a pretext the erotic fantasies of the marginals who had surfaced during the transference protest, the transference process set in motion by the Inquisition. The persecutors themselves projected all their personal inhibitions onto them. In the 16th and 17th centuries, if certain women were casual in their behaviour, this was sufficient reason to make ready for them in this world the tortures of hell. In engravings of the period, we see them looking in the mirror and seeing not their own face, but the backside of a demon. Untidy hair and clothes are enough to arouse suspicion of witchcraft. In Germany in the 17th century, a woman is handed over to the authorities by her own husband who came upon her unexpectedly during the night, not naked, but dishevelled and unbuttoned. And if a coquette, unlacing her corset, should say, It is too hot, do you mind? Her interlocutor would reply, It will be still hotter in hell. Part 3. An Exhaustive Moralism. The Legend of Faust. 
The most perfect expression of the Reformation is the legend of Faust, which contains all the ideological characteristics already mentioned. Censorship of the imaginary, the intrinsic guilt of nature and of its principal instrument, woman, and woman's masculinization. There is also a historical tradition documented by Trithemius, Fear, and others, which does not interest us in this context, that of the charlatan Jorg Faust, who assumed the Latinized name of Georgius Sibelicus. He must have lived between 1480 and 1540, and the villagers of Kittlingen still consider him their most famous son. There are two ancient versions of the legend, the one by the anonymous man of Wolfenbüttel, and the Volksbuch, printed by Johann Speyers in Frankfurt in 1587, probably compiled by one Andreas Frey, head of the College of Classics in Speyer. In 1592, the Volksbuch was translated into English by P.F. Gent under the title The History of the Damnable Life and Deserved Death of Dr. John Fausts. It thus became accessible to Christopher Marlowe. The Faustspiel, adapted for the stage for actors and for marionettes, was immediately exported to Holland. Its great popularity with the Protestant Reformation brought it to the attention of Catholic circles, and in 1637, Calderon de la Barca did a free adaptation of it for Spanish audiences. Whether the author of the Volksbuch was Andreas Frey or someone else, it was in any case the product of a well-read man whose pious inventiveness was drawn from ancient sources and combined with the German historical tradition. Strange as it may seem, the name of Faust does not seem to be borrowed from the German source, but from the famous Simon Magos, Simon the Magician, contemporary of the Apostles, and surnamed Faustus. He was the anti-hero of various stories attributed to St. Clement of Rome, and other sources of late antiquity diligently collected by Baronios, a 16th century writer in his Annals. Moreover, Simon Magus was believed to be the earliest Gnostic. In his capacity, he claimed to be divine and had married a prostitute called Helen, to him the incarnation of Helen of Troy, as well as of the wisdom, Anoia, of God. In the Volksbuch, Faust, through his magic acts, obtains the simulacrum of Helen of Troy, an episode explicable on the one hand as deriving from the legend of Simon Faustus, and on the other from another ancient tradition, that of St. Cyprian of Antioch. The legend of Cyprian is of Encratite origin. The Encratites represented a trend within Eastern Christianity characterized by total repression of sexuality, including marriage, and by a strict ascetic regimen. The earliest version of the tale is in the apocryphal Acts of the Apostle Andrew, written in Greek around the year 200, of which a fragmentary Coptic translation was recovered by Gil Quispel among the manuscripts of the late Karl Schmid. In its canonical form, the story, a very famous one, dates from the 4th century, when it occurs in no less than three drafts, the Confessio Soi 
Poenintentia Cipriani, pronounced heretical by Pope Galasius I, who confuses Cyprian of Antioch with another Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage. The Conversio Sancti Justinae Virginis et Sancti Cipriani Episcopi, which perpetuates the same mistake, and finally the draft dealing with the martyrdom of the two saints. In 379, Gregory of Nazianzus mentions the legend in one of his sermons, while the ecclesiastical historian Phocius, in one of his writings, sums up the contents of a heroic poem in three cantos on St. Cyprian, composed by Eudoxia, daughter of the philosopher Leontius, who became empress in 421. The work by Vincent de Beauvais and the Legendia Aurea of Jacobus de Voragine ensure a wide readership to the tale of Cyprian and Justina. The second version of the legend was written in the 10th century by Simeon Metaphrastes, translated into Latin in 1558 by Aloysius Lipomanos, and republished by Laurentius Surius in 1580 and 1618 in an edifying work that was highly influential in its day. Calderon seems to have noted Surius's tale, but his two main sources remain the Legenda Aurea and a collection of lives of the saints entitled Flos Sanctorum. Going beyond its numerous variations, the legend relates that Cyprian, a magician from Antioch or a friend of his, Agliades, yearns for the beautiful Justina, unaware that she is a Christian and has taken a vow of chastity before God. Of course, he is haughtily rejected. All that is left for him to do is to make a pact with the devil, who promises to give him Justina in exchange for his soul. Lacking power over Christians, however, the devil cannot fulfill Cyprian's desire. He tries to deceive him, furnishing him with a simulacrum which at a distance resembles Justina, but is actually only a diabolic apparition. Deeply impressed by the strength of Justina and her god, Cyprian himself is converted and follows her to martyrdom. Apart from its conclusion, the structure of Faust's Volksbuch is quite similar, and in the form of drama, shorn of its many moralistic digressions of the prose version, it must resemble still more closely the legend of Cyprian and Justina. It deals with a magician who has recourse to a pact with the devil to obtain, among other favours, those of a young girl and the simulacrum of the beautiful Helen of Troy. Let us imagine that someone had the opportunity to see a theatrical production of Faust in English or in Dutch without understanding a word of it. He would have taken it to be a pessimistic version of the legend of Cyprian in which the magician, instead of following Justina to martyrdom, was damned. It seemed that this was the case with Calderon himself, who, according to his friend and editor, J. de Vera Tassis e Villaroel, had spent ten years in His Majesty's service, first in Milan and then in the southern Netherlands. Later, his biographers reduced this period of time to include only the years 1623 to 25. In 1623, as it happens, English theatrical companies put on several plays in the Netherlands. Undoubtedly, Calderon, who understood neither English nor Dutch, saw them. 
The action enabled him to identify the legend of Cyprian. He saw the same scenes he must have already have witnessed in Spanish drama. The pact with the devil which took place in various plays, including El Esclavo del Demonio and El Amparo de los Hombres by Mira de Amescua, and the apparition of the simulacrum of Justina, which also resembled a scene in El Esclavo del Demonio, 1612. But he could also note the differences which he put into use in his own drama. For example, in the English production, the pact took place on the stage. In Mira de Amascua's version, In the Wings, the English production began with Faust's monologue, the same monologue Goethe adapted in his famous monologue for the Grub Elnden Gelehrten. Calderon thought he had guessed the meaning from the stage presentation and made use of it not only in the Magico Prodigioso, but also in his plays, Los dos Amantes del Cielo, El José de las Mujeres, and El Gran Principe de Fez. As for the name of Faust, Calderon used it in a surprising way in the first version of the Magico Prodigioso, unpublished until 1877. In the legend of Cyprian, the young girl, Justa, changes her name to Justina when she is baptised. In the first part of Calderon's play, she is not called Justa, but Faustina. The story of Cyprian and Justina had originated among the Encratites in the 2nd century. Encratism forbade sexuality even when its goal was not pleasure but procreation. That is why the apocryphal acts of the apostles Andrew and Thomas relate various conversions effectuated by our heroes among married women whom they urged to practice continence. The brutal reactions of the husbands and the persecutions of the apostles should not surprise us. Their message was a little extreme for this world. The moral of the 4th century story was apologetical. It showed the power of Christianity. The devil is helpless against a Christian girl who says her prayers. In the belief he had served weak and ineffectual masters, Cyprian gives up his profession of magician to embrace faith in a victorious god, the god of Justina. Insofar as Cyprian's love for Justina seeks gratification, it can only find it in death, since, due to the forcefulness of the Christian message, its object proves impregnable. Cyprian is obliged to sacrifice it because his erotic magic has not borne fruit, and his reasoning to the very end remains the reasoning of a sorcerer. Its failure reveals Justina's magic power, which he can only gain by becoming a Christian himself. But Justina also exhorts him to bear witness, that is the etymological meaning of the word martyr, to the supremacy of the Christian God, and the ex-magician can only hasten to respond to this gracious offer. We can understand to be sure this pious exemplum of the era when the martyrdom of Christians was mandatory. But what could have been its message in the town of Yepes in 1637, when the Magico Prodigioso was performed for the first time? This time, Cyprian, like Johann or Jörg Faust, represents a symbol not of pagan antiquity vanquished by Christianity, but of the Renaissance vanquished by the Reformation. 
Its message is therefore the repudiation of Renaissance values in favour of the values of the Reformation, as portrayed by a young girl with flattened bosom called Faustina Justina. From the outset of Calderon's play, the print, the sorcerer Cipriano is shown to be a disciple of the Renaissance, viewing the world as a fascinating work of art. In turn, the devil himself only repeats the same ideas, making it clear that he has been the pupil of Marsilio Ficino and Cornelius Agrippa. It is as though they were now identified with the devil in the new popular interpretation by the Reformation. Calderon's devil is no longer a transnatural apparition. He is merely an ideological fabrication who expresses himself like Ficino and Pico della Marandola. The embodiment of the essence of a doctrine that the reformed population had learned to despise and detest. Listen to him. Vien, en la fabrica galada, del mundo sebe pues fue. Solo un concepto al obrala, sola una voluntad luso, esa arquitectura rara, del cielo una sola al sol, luna y estrellas visaras, y una sola al hombre que es, no mundo con alma. Reader's note, I apologise for my appalling Spanish. Ficino's platonic theology is the wellspring of the devil's misleading views. There too the world is envisaged as a work of art. Artificiosissimum mundi optificium. And man, the microcosm, parus mundus. As the artifice of brazen nature, naturae audentissimum artificium. The science the devil possesses is art. That is to say, magic. In particular, he can make the stars come down to earth and convinces Cipriano of his talents by moving a mountain. As to Cipriano himself, he learns necromancy, pyromancy and palmistry and in order to perform magic, he forms graphic symbols ensuring the cooperation of the stars, the winds and the spirits of the dead. In the tradition of Marsilio Ficino, Cornelius Agrippa, and Giordano Bruno. Truth to tell, magic rites are described quite superficially in the Magico Prodigioso. The important thing was to establish a direct relationship between magic and the devil, between the devil and the Renaissance. Enemy number one of the Reformation. Calderon accomplishes this without any difficulty. He then concentrates on what we might call the equation Eros equals magic, which also stems from the Renaissance. It is at this point that Faustina appears, whose name acquires a rather exact symbolism due to its connection with Faust. Now, before being essentially a Christian, which Cipriano does not know, Faustina is a woman, a product of nature, a product perfect in beauty since she counts many admirers who do not hesitate to eliminate one another to obtain her favours. Without her knowledge or volition, Faustina was designed by nature to be an erotic object, a cause of covetous desire and dissension. The contradiction and tension between the natural destiny of Faustina and the 
cultural, acosmic aspirations of Justina are focal to Calderon's scenario. Like Goethe's Faust, the Magico Prodigioso begins with a prologue in heaven in which the devil, who is under the domination of the Lord, intends to test the science of Cipriano and the virtue of Justina. There follows the monologue of the Grub Elden Gelehrten, in which the young Cipriano does not prove to be preoccupied like Faust by the problem of old age and the vanity of earthly things, but simply by a theological question he fails to resolve. That is, he would like to understand who this god is, described by Pliny as absolute beauty, essence and cause, all-seeing and effective. Todo vista e todo manos. While trying to separate two enraged suitors of the beautiful Justina, daughter of Lissandro, Cipriano himself is taken with this marvellous creature. Now, he does not know that in reality Justina is the baptismal name of Faustina, who is not the daughter of Lissandro, and moreover that Lissandro is not the person he appears to be either. Lissandro and Justina are both crypto-Christians, Christians who hide within a hostile society. Lissandro adopted Faustina on the death of her mother, who had been a Christian martyr. And Cipriano also does not know that Justina has pledged her soul and her body to the same God to whom her mother had sacrificed her life. At bottom, Cipriano sees in Justino only what she no longer is, the beautiful Faustina, a perfect product of nature who exerts a powerful erotic fascination over him. Although innocent, the young girl cannot help but casting natural magic spells all around her. It is she who faustizes Cipriano, who changes him into Faust, who almost forces him to practice erotic magic. In comparing the Magico Prodigioso with the Christian legend, we see that for Calderon, a more subtle erotic play enters the tale, a kind of play that corresponds perfectly to the concepts of the Reformation. Nature herself is the sinner who engenders Eros. Faustina, at his behest, faustizes all the males surrounding her. How to emerge from this dilemma? The young girl does not yet know how to use the methods refined by the culture to become unattractive, to flatten her chest, to assume masculine ways, to defend herself from the assaults of Cipriano and the others. All she has is the weapon of meditation and prayer. But Eros has his own methods. The more Cipriano is repulsed, the greater his passion grows. In order to obtain the object of his covetous desire, all he can do is to sign, in his own blood, a pact with the devil, promising him his soul in exchange for Justina. In turn, the devil sets loose powerful processes of erotic magic, designed to deliver Justina to him, despite herself. Far from asking help from his grisly colleagues in the abysses of hell, the devil evokes, instead through magic incantations, a gentle erotic phantasm with the purpose of exciting Justina, of awakening her dormant natural being, of reviving and encouraging her femininity. The principle behind this rests on the rules of erotic magic expressed by Ficino and developed by Bruno. One must 
act upon the subject's fantasies while taking account of his peculiarities. Now, besides having counted too much on the fact that Justina is also Faustina, that is, a product of nature as well as culture, a woman as well as a Christian, the devil had committed the irreparable mistake of not reading the Institutio Sacerdotum of Cardinal Francisco of Toledo. 1596, which had just come out in Rome, before Calderon's departure for the Netherlands. Had he read it, the devil would have learned that it was impossible to influence anyone's free will. All he can do is produce phantasms to act on the imagination, but free will remains. The devil can be accused of some ignorance in the realm of theology, but not of having failed to act in conformity with the rules of phantasmic magic. He had revealed to Justina the world of nature permeated by the winds of Eros in order to arouse carnal appetites in her. Aya, infernal abysmo, desesperando imperio de timismo, de tu prison ingrata, tus lascivios espiritus desata, amenazando roina, al virgen edificio de Justina. Su casto pensamiento, de mel torpes fantasmas en el viento. Hoy se informa su honesta fantasia, zielini, idi con dulcissima armonia, todo probaque amores, los poyaros, los plantas y los flores, nada miren su hoyos, que no sean de amo dulces despoyos. Nada oigon sus oiros, que no sean de amor tienos gemidos. Meditation and prayer safeguard the free will of Justina, removing her from the natural world and giving her a firm footing in the world of religious values. The lascivious devils of the lower regions do not succeed in drawing her into the world of nature, which, through its magic chains, tempts all beings to appease their desire. The devil does not succeed in transforming Justina into Faustina, the subject of culture into a subject of nature. But his failure signifies not only the victory of the Reformation spirit over the Renaissance spirit, but also the triumph of the reality principle over the pleasure principle. In fact, erotic magic, which presupposes the transmission of phantasms from the sender to the receiver, yields no results. The devil can only offer Cipriano a hideous shade of Justina, a demonic spectre. This means that erotic magic is only capable of producing phantasms and that the fulfillment of desire it addresses is not real but is itself phantasmic. In other words, the performing of magic takes place in a closed circle. Erotic magic is a form of autism. This conclusion, to be sure, far outstrips Calderon's moralistic intent but is nonetheless implicit in the development of the plot. Later on, when the religious fervour of the Reformation is extinguished, this is all that remains. The strong contrast between the imagination, pleasure principle, and free will, reality principle, and the idea that magic autism has no real power. 
by virtue of her victory over Faustina, her natural counterpart, her own femininity, her own right to desire and to enjoy, Justina ends by triumphing over Cipriano. The end of the play perfectly corresponds to the purposes of the Reformation and can easily be interpreted according to the historical facts of the period. Cipriano and Justina will be united in death, which means a complete victory of culture over nature, free will over imagination, the reality principle over the pleasure principle, Thanatos over Eros. The dual martyrdom has now become an anachronistic symbol. According to the standards of the Reformation, if Cipriano had been a young scholar salvaged by the church and Justina a virtuous young girl with flattened breasts, they could have married and had children, provided that the flames of passion burning between them were forever extinguished. The revolution in spirit and customs brought about by the Reformation led to the total destruction of Renaissance ideals. The Renaissance conceived of the natural and social world as a spiritual organism in which perpetual exchanges of phantasmic messages occurred. That was the principle of magic and of Eros, Eros itself being a form of magic. The Reformation destroys the structure of phantasms in motion. It forbids the use of imagination and proclaims the necessity for total suppression of sinful nature. It even attempts artificially to make the sexes one and the same so that natural temptations might disappear. At the time when the religious values of the Reformation are losing all their effectiveness, its theoretical and practical opposition to the spirit of the Renaissance receives an interpretation of a cultural and scientific kind. But it is a lesson that henceforth mankind takes for granted. The imaginary and the real are two separate and distinct realms. Magic is a form of absorption in fantasy as an escape from reality. The reality principle is set over against the pleasure principle, and so forth. Part 4. A Final Result Modern Western civilization is altogether a product of the Reformation, a Reformation which, void of its religious content, nevertheless kept its conventions and its rituals. On the theoretical level, the pervasive censorship of the imaginary results in the advent of modern exact science and technology. On the practical level, it results in the advent of modern institutions. On the psychosocial level, it results in all our chronic neuroses, which are due to the entirely unilateral orientation of Reformation culture and its rejection of the imaginary on the grounds of principle. We still live, so to speak, in a secularized appendix to the Reformation, and on close examination, many phenomena of our era, for which we have never sought a historical explanation, go back to the great spiritual and political conflicts of the 16th and 17th centuries. We are accustomed to regarding the progress of military technology and the arms race as perfectly normal. We are therefore all the more surprised to find out that they too are attributable to the 17th century, primarily to a celebrity in his time, unknown to most people nowadays, the chemist Johann Rudolf Glauber. 
Glauber, deeply affected by the events of the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648, between the Catholic and the Protestant states, reached the conclusion, religious as well as practical, that only one power could ensure order and peace in Europe. Germany. To reach this goal, it was imperative that Germany be proclaimed the universal monarchy, in order to accomplish this, the prerequisite had to be Germany's military and economic supremacy over the rest of the world, which it could only gain by developing more advanced military technology. Let us leave aside Glauber's economic solution, which was to hoard products against years of famine. His strategic solution is definitely more interesting and gives us the key to understanding the origin of the arms race. Glauber recommends the use of chemical weapons not only to ensure the military supremacy of Germany, but also to stop the Turks from advancing in Europe. He himself invents a weapon more effective than gunpowder, namely pressure tubes for pulverising acids to spray on the enemy, and also acid grenades and bombs that would make it possible to conquer the enemy's fortifications. Glauber believes the chemical weapon has a dual advantage to guarantee victory to the army that possesses it, and to blind enemy soldiers without killing them. In that way, prisoners can be transformed into a cheap labour force, thus ensuring the economic supremacy of Germany as well. Glauber is aware that the secret of the new weapons will eventually become known by the enemy, whether the Turks or other adversaries. He therefore envisages the existence of a group of scholars men endowed with a quick and penetrating mind, whose only task must be to develop and perfect more and more sophisticated armaments. This will change the nature of war totally. War will no longer be won by brute force, but by the intelligence of scholars and engineers. Force will yield to skill, for skill often succeeds in overcoming force. Glauber's foresight was to prove correct. Not only has Germany tried several times unsuccessfully to be the universal monarchy, but the nature of modern warfare has actually changed to such an extent that it no longer takes place on the ground, but only in the laboratories of the great powers. All of the foregoing is not a mere curiosity of history, but illuminating proof that our civilization continues to die in the trenches dug by the Reformation and by the political events that followed it. The modern West, as Nietzsche foresaw, is assuming the character of a fatal result of the Reformation. But is it also the final result? Its lines of development fixed once and for all in the 16th and 17th centuries? On this question my book closes without daring to express too clearly a hope that may be utopian. That a new renaissance, a rebirth of the world, may overcome all our neuroses, all conflicts and all divisions existing between us. For such a renaissance to appear, a new reformation must arise, effecting once again a profound modification of the human imagination in order to impress on it other paths and other goals. The only question is whether it will seem friendly and benign to those who experience its upheavals. After all, the important thing is to provide an ecological climate in which a new wingless fly may crawl without being destroyed, so long as this genetic mutation is the one we might hope for.